And our, our reading this morning, sort of in honor of Mother's Day, is uh, taken from Ephesians chapter 5. And it's that section of Ephesians with instructions for people in various roles in the family. And uh, so, Ephesians 5, verse 25 to 6, verse 4. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, again, I just want to say thanks, everyone, for being here. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to see you here, and uh, it's good to have uh, more people in the room, and we're looking forward to the time when we can have even more people and the time when we, everyone can be together at the same time. Uh, that's really how God intended it. This morning I thought I would take, since we're doing this little restart thing, I, uh, I thought I would take some time to, uh, a little detour from our uh, study of the book of John and uh, to sort of address the situation maybe a little. Uh, I also just want to teach this passage of scripture from Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, so I hope we don't get too distracted by how it relates uh, to our current situation. But I, I want to ask the question, what if it was dangerous to go to church? What if it was dangerous to go to church? My own personal opinion is right now here in Bonaire, it's not very dangerous to go to church. Uh, of course, there's a room for a disagreement about that. So uh, some of us maybe think it is a little bit dangerous to go to church, and I can understand that too. In some places in the world right at this minute, I'm quite sure it is dangerous to go to church. And uh, there's actually a whole book in the Bible that addresses this question, and it's the book of Hebrews. Because in the book of Hebrews, the people the writer is addressing uh, thought it was dangerous to go to church. Now, they thought this for an entirely different reason, and I think the 
different reason makes a difference as well, but we'll talk some more about that. I also uh, came up with a, another uh, kind of, uh, well, it's kind of an attempt at humor. <laughs> another title for this message, which is, Don't Be Any Nuttier Than You Have To Be. See, I knew that wasn't going to be that funny. <laughs> Don't be any nuttier than you have to be. Uh, maybe it'll become clear. I think some Christians are a little bit nutty about not going to church, and they have the opinion that no matter what happens in the world or what the government says or anything and everything, that you have to go to church or you're just not really a Christian. And uh, I've read this week, in fact, about a pastor who said, I'm not worried about this virus. We're having church no matter what, no matter what. And uh, this pastor got the COVID-19 virus and died. I think he was a little nuttier than he had to be, honestly. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about what's the appropriate level of caution. Is there a way we can obey the commandments of Scripture to meet together and also uh, take care of each other, not do anything that uh, might endanger someone else? Anyway, to get at all that, I thought, let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 25. This is, uh, by the way, this is one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible. It's one of those texts that's like a hinge between our faith and our lives. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's just a, an especially encouraging passage of Scripture. Let me just read it for you. It says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he opened for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us think carefully about one another to stimulate love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I should mention that the first word in this text is the word therefore, and so it's a good idea to say, well, what is the basis of this argument that the, that the writer is making here in Hebrews chapter 10, therefore? Well, if we just look up in the previous verses in the chapter, we see this, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. The offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And then a couple of verses later, 
when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then in a couple verses after that, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One of the major points in the middle section of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of the sacrifice of Christ compared to the sacrifices of animals in the old system. And one way in which that sacrifice is superior is it actually accomplishes the righteousness of God and the redemption of sinners and the purification of sinners as opposed to just being sort of a temporary covering. And we've read here in these verses, it's once, once, and once. Because it actually accomplishes what God sets out to accomplish, you only need one. And it's once and for all. It's one time. And it's once and for all in any given person's life and experience, as it says, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So it's once and for all in the history of the world and the church and the life of the church, and it's once and for all in your life and in mine. I don't need another sacrifice next week. In fact, in the old Mosaic system, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice every day. Every day. Now, once for all. Well, he says, therefore, since we have uh, confidence, since we have a great high priest, later he says, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, because we have these things, there's three, uh, I used to say, three lettuces in this text. Let us, let us, let us, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider one another. There's three things to let us do. Now that expression, let us, it doesn't really, it doesn't mean allow us, it means there's something we should do in response to this. There's something we should. You could have translated it, we should, or we ought to. Therefore, we ought to. Let us draw near. But before we look at those three let us phrases, let's think about these things we have. He says, things we have. Therefore, brothers, since we have. So this is a statement of something that is simply true. There's no commandment here. We have confidence. Well, that's good. We have confidence to enter the holy place. Now, Hebrews has mentioned this many times already. It's Hebrews where we have that, uh, that expression, come with boldness into the throne of grace on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. So here he's repeating that idea. We have confidence to enter the holy place. Well, let me ask you, do you have confidence? 
Do you feel confident to enter the holy place? He's saying we have confidence. And you know what? His basis for saying this is not how we feel. <laughs> His basis for saying this doesn't depend on whether I feel the confidence or not. I tend to think having confidence means I have a certain feeling. Mm, not in this case. How do we have this confidence? It's right here. It says, by his blood. By the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter the holy place. If Jesus died for your sins, you have confidence. Uh, so you may as well feel confident because you have confidence. And then he says, and by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. What's the new and living way which he opened for us through the veil? In other words, in the old system, there was like this heavy veil. No one was even allowed to look at the presence of God. Now we, can, we have confidence to go right in there. Now think, if you were a Jewish person back in these days, how would, how would you feel? That would be kind of scary, actually. You'd think, no, you can't even look in there. And here the writer of Hebrews is saying, because of the sacrifice of Christ, you can march in there as if you own the place. This word confidence means bold. You have the right the door is open to you. I wish us Christians were as astounded by that as we should be. That as sinners, as sinful people, we can march right into the presence of God. That is amazing. We should be more amazed about it. <laughs> but anyway, we have confidence to go because by his blood, by this new and living way. What's the new and living way? It is his flesh. Again, it's a reference to the sacrifice of Christ, which he's already mentioned, the once and for all, once and for all, once and for all, for all time. That great sacrifice of Christ, which accomplishes our redemption, is the basis of our access. We have confidence. So you might not feel particularly confident, but the door's open. You can go in. Even with your feelings, you can go in. You can bring whatever feeling you have right in there. It doesn't matter. God sees you in Christ. You have absolute confidence to go in. Because you have that, you should. <laughs> anyway, we also have, another thing we have is a great high priest over the house of God. Think of it. We know from reading this text that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. So let's imagine that as some kind of room you might enter. Well, suppose you go in there and you're a sinner. <laughs> you're a sinner. And you're standing there in the presence of absolute righteous holiness in the person of God. Uh, <laughs> you should be, act like Isaiah and go, get me out of here. Instead, this says, we have a great high priest, a, 
someone who represents us, someone we go with into the presence of God. We don't go in there by ourselves. We have a great high priest who is the very person, the Son of God, who gave himself this once and for all sacrifice for sin. So when I'm before the Father, I'm with the Son. I'm in Christ. And so instead of fear, there's affection. Instead of wrath, there's love. So these are the things we have. These are just simple statements of fact. If we are in Christ, these things are true of us. We have this confidence. We have this high priest. And uh, then later on, he says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean, having our bodies washed with pure water. Those things are already true of us. And also, by the way, those things are sort of wrapped up in uh, understanding the book of Ezekiel, and we don't have time to go into all that, but that's really just another way of saying, look, God has uh, sanctified you, cleansed you, purified you, your whole person, body and soul, from heart to body. And by the way, there's also, in this reference in the book of Ezekiel, there's a... There's a there's a clear allusion to the indwelling Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So now the whole Trinity is involved. You see it? Anyway, so on the basis of these things he, we have, he says, let us draw near. Draw near. Draw near. What does that mean? How do you draw near to God? Well, I would tell you this. Drawing near is a conscious, you, in, you're, it involves your mind, continuous, dependent enjoyment of God and his grace. It's what the ancient sage called practicing the presence of God. Conscious, continuous, dependent enjoyment of God. That word enjoyment is pretty important. Enjoyment of God and his grace. Because of Christ, I'm now in a position to enjoy a relationship with God rather than to be afraid of ever coming into contact with such righteousness. God's grace is super abundant to me. If I sin, Christ intercedes. I'm, I, I can't find a way out from under the goodness of God's grace. So we draw near. To me, this is another way of saying what I say all the time, which is prayer is the entirety of the Christian life. It's to view everything all the time in terms of its dependence upon God, my Father, my provider. To trust Him. To trust Him. It's the whole thing, drawing near to God. It is the thing for which God, Jesus died to reconcile us to a holy God.
to give us this open fellowship with the very Creator. The writer goes on to describe how. He says, with a sincere heart. Another way you could translate that is a true heart. You know, sincerity and truth are not the natural conditions of our heart, right? I want to refer you to uh, the book of Jeremiah, (laughs) chapter 17, a famous passage we're all familiar with, I'm sure. It says in verse 7 of Jeremiah 17, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water. It sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. (laughs) Got a little wind here. Then he says, the very next verse after that, you know, that's pretty encouraging. Look, if you trust in the Lord, you're like a tree with, next to a river. You've got it made. And then he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, trusting God is not the natural condition of our fallen hearts. Drawing near is not the natural condition. A true heart. I can't, I can't measure my own heart, a true heart. Well, a true heart is simply a heart that recognizes and aligns with the truth, a heart that trusts God in Christ. When I realize, my, but my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, I, I'm sick, I'm sick, my heart is sick, what do I do? Christ, Christ, Christ. That's why this combination, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Your heart is deceitful. Don't trust your heart. Trust in him. Then you have a true heart as soon as you're trusting in him. Draw near with a true heart. And then he says, in full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith. I think there's a strong temptation with Christians to trust our faith instead of trusting Christ. To try to evaluate what's the quality of my faith? What's the quantity of my faith? Am I really believing? Am I really trusting him? Or, yeah, is it enough? But my confidence, my assurance of faith does not come from me. It is a recognition of God's word, God's promise. If I ask, what makes me so sure I'll go to heaven? The answer is, God said so. It is not uh, because I believe When I say, God said so, I'm obviously believing what he said. But I don't evaluate the quality of my faith or, you know, my mind and my emotions and my 
spirit are all over the place all the time. I'm up and down. Sometimes I'm worried. Sometimes I'm depressed. I'm doing all these things that are not trusting in God. And the invitation here is draw near to God based on the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ only. And when I remember the sacrifice of Christ, I draw near with full confidence. I just march on in there. And I think, if God gives me any trouble, I'm just going to point to Jesus. That's all I've got. That's all I ever have. That's the full assurance. I draw near with the full assurance of faith. I can have total confidence. I can have that childish confidence, you know? When kids just go someplace where they don't belong because they don't know any better, they have childish confidence. That's what I have before God. I can have childish confidence. I don't belong in there, but I can go in there anyway because of the sacrifice of Christ. In fact, because of the sacrifice of Christ, because I'm united to Christ, I actually do belong there. And the scripture says, I am right now seated with or in Christ at the right hand of God. It's mind-blowing. So that's the first, therefore. <laughs> that's the first let us. I'm going to have to give you the second two pretty fast now. <laughs> and it's really the third one where we have this connection to this situation we're in now, where the scripture says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And it raises the question, so should you go to church no matter how dangerous it might be? Well, anyway, the second one is hold fast. Hold fast to what? Hold fast to the confession of our hope. The confession of our hope. And to hold something fast is to fasten it down. To fasten it down. This morning, I got to help with the sound crew set up slightly by taping some cables to the floor. Now they are held fast to the floor. I was fastening something down. In the Navy, we might say, batten down the hatches. We're fastening it down so it can't sink. Here, we're holding fast to a confession, and a confession is something you say. The word confession means to say the same, to agree. To agree. And so what the thing it is we want to hold fast is this confession, this agreement to hope. That's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? This agreement to hope, this confession of our hope. If you ask me, what is my hope? I confess my hope is what? What is our hope in Christ? Our hope is the thing that gives us confidence for the future. It's the thing that enables you to get out of bed every day and think, you know, it might be worth doing. If someone doesn't have a hope, they can't even function. 
And hope is that thing that you look forward to, that you anticipate, that is the thing that uh, motivates you, the good thing promised, the cure we're looking for. And in the context of Scripture, that hope is the coming of Jesus Christ. That's the entire thing. I have several passages I could refer to you. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. 1 Timothy 1, 1. Titus 2, 11 to 15. 1 Peter 1, 13. I mean, we could go on and on. Romans 8, 18 to 25. The one I really love the most, and you've heard me talk about it all the time, which is 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. John is saying, look, look at this ridiculous truth, this amazing thing that should cause you to leap for joy and dance in the fountain or whatever. Look at this amazing love of God that he would call you his child. You know, most people, we go around taking for granted that we're God's children we don't know how amazing it is that he would address us as his children. It says, so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is it didn't know him. It says, beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We have no idea how good that is, he says, but we know when he shows up, We'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What's our hope? Seeing Christ and being transformed by that experience. And even now, to whatever extent we can see Christ truly, we are transformed by that experience. That's what he means when he says, if you have this hope, he purifies himself now. This hope translates the purity of Christ back into the present. This hope of the future pushes my transformation into the here and now. That's the hope. It's the confession of that hope that we are supposed to nail down. Study. <laughs> Hope. Study the benefit of being in Christ. Focus your attention on the presence of Christ. This hope, we confess, is the full realization of Christ-likeness in his redeemed people. Being caught up in the song of the Trinity, the eternal song of the Trinity, the fellowship of God, Jesus talks in John chapter 17 about us being one like, like the Father and the Son are one. And us being one with them. We're getting included in this eternal, glorious fellowship by our redemption in Christ. And that is our hope. He's saying, hold fast the confession of that hope. It's the best thing you can imagine. 
As you look into your future, ask yourself the question, what's the best thing that could happen tomorrow? What's the best thing that could happen tomorrow? And if we're holding fast this confession, the best thing that could happen tomorrow is the personal arrival of Jesus Christ. Well, guess what? Even if he doesn't arrive tomorrow, he can arrive tomorrow. If you draw near. If you draw near. And this is the focus. You see the focus of this text? It is so on Jesus Christ. The focus of the Christian life is not the practicalities of the Christian life. It's the impracticalities. That fellowship that we have with God in Christ, that has many, many practical implications. But they're the implications. This is the thing itself. Our hope. I think, what do you, how do you conclude the sentence, if only, if only, what? What comes after if only in your head? Well, living in the regular world all the time, things like, if only my boss would not be so unreasonable. Or if only, you know, this virus would go away. Or if only I had a million dollars. Or if only my sister didn't die. Or if only, I mean, go on. And my distractible mind will wander my hope all over the place, doesn't yours? I think, man, if only I could do this, that, then everything would be great. Uh-uh. No, it wouldn't. As soon as if only happens, another if only comes. I've read stories, probably you have too. I've even known a few guys who got rich. You ever known anyone got rich? You know, I think if only I had, you name the amount of money. <laughs> if only. And those guys have it. You know what happens? The number goes up. The if only number goes up. It never comes down within what I already have, ever, for anyone, never. What's my point? Jesus needs to be in the sentence, if only. If only Jesus came tomorrow. Yeah, that would satisfy. That's the hope that doesn't disappoint. All other hopes really are kind of ridiculous and some form of weird denial. And I don't mean to say you shouldn't plan for a nice future, put away money for your retirement or any of those things. But in the end, the only satisfying hope is Christ. And he says, hold fast to this without wavering. <laughs> without wavering. That means, that word is, ah, uh, I'm just going to try to say it in Greek, akline. Or maybe it's akline. I forget my accents. 
It means unbending. <laughs> unbending. I hold fast this confession. I will not bend. That's pretty serious. How do I do that? Well, here's the answer. He keeps coming back. He who promised is faithful. How do I hold a confession of hope unbending? Because it's God who said so. Not because it's something I made up, not because it's something that may or may not happen one day, but because God has promised it and God can make it happen. He who promised is faithful. In Romans chapter 4, we read about Abraham. It says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope. In other words, uh, anyone else would have thought this irrational. But he says that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. As he had been told, so shall your offering be. He did not weaken in faith when he, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. He was about 100 years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him bend, waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith, it says here, was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. This is the sort of faith we exercise, and it's not based on our strength. It's based on our lack of it and our confidence in the word of God, the promise of God. God said that he would do it. That's all I've got. God said he would. And so my hope in the return of Christ is the fact that the, prom the promise of God is the return of Christ. And he who promised is faithful. And that brings us to the last let us, which is consider one another. I don't know if you've noticed, but those first two were all in our vertical relationship to God, And it's very important that we notice that drawing near and holding fast to our confession of hope, our, our looking forward to the return of Christ, precede our horizontal relationship with one another. I, if, I just, if I just think this is all about, you know, how we treat each other, I'm just wrong. It's not true. How we treat each other is the, is the consequence and the spin-off of how God has treated us. You know, our faith in him. But anyway, he says, consider one another. And he's not talking about being polite. It, this word consider means think carefully about each other. It means really know each other. It means developing close relationships. It means being real and open and transparent with one another. If we're going to consider one another, I'm, it means I'm supposed to think carefully about other people, especially people in the church. And then it has a purpose. 
consider one another in order to stimulate love and good deeds. In other words, I'm supposed to think carefully about you in order to get you to be more loving. <laughs> it doesn't say consider one another in order to be more loving of the people around you. It says consider one another in order to get them to be more loving. You hear the difference? It's very strange. It's saying, look, uh, sister, I'm supposed to think about you in order to help you express the love of Christ more. Isn't that something? That's amazing. I think if I do that, I'll probably be more loving too. But that's the goal. I, our attention to each other should create a certain discomfort with a lack of love and a lack of good deeds, which are only expressions of love. And this is that a love, that agape kind of love. It's unconditional. Unconditional. We do it on purpose. It makes sacrifices. It's, it's always for the good. It actually produces some benefit. It's an incarnation of the Spirit of God in the world. That kind of love. All we're talking about here is helping each other manifest Christ. Oh. So if I think about how do I get you to be more loving, you know what the first thing comes to my mind after reading this text is? Hey, draw near. Hold fast the confession of our hope. I'm going to go back to those first two things, only now for your sake. I'm going to say, hey, don't forget the grace of God in Christ. Don't forget the privilege child position you have to go boldly before the throne of grace don't forget, Jesus is coming for you. <laughs> Jesus is coming for you, and when you see him, you will not believe what you become. All of those things, if I tell you about those things, if I remind you of those things, I will be stimulating love and good deeds, will I not? So I always come back. It always has to flow from God through us. He's always the starter. And then we come to this phrase, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. It's an interesting word, assembly. It's, it's the word synagogue, actually. And really, in the context of Hebrews, he's, he's saying, look, don't go back to the Jewish synagogue. Stick with the Jesus synagogue. That's really the point of this text. But we don't have much time to go and explore that. But that's really what he's saying. He says, our own assembly. And he means the Christian assembly. Still, still, don't forsake the assembly. So should we go to church no matter what? Is that what this text says? No, actually, it doesn't say that. It says, don't forsake the assembly. That word forsake, forsake, means something like leave alone, leave stranded. So let's imagine you and I were on a desert island. Oh, <laughs> let's imagine that for a second. We're on a desert island. It's just the two of us. 
And one day I'm on one side of the island and you're on the other side of the island. Ah. And what floats up on the beach before me is a boat. My rescue is here. So I get in the boat and I go back to my house. I have forsaken you. That's the meaning of this word. I forget all about you, and I just take care of myself. This word, forsaking the assembly, has that sort of leave you stranded. You know, each person, we say this all the time here, each person in the group is there because God is giving things to the group by giving that person to the group. There's something you provide in our congregation that we need. Something. Something. And he's saying, you know, don't deprive the congregation, the assembly. Don't deprive us of the reason God gave you to us. We need to be together. And, you know, ideally, we're together in person. There are some things we cannot provide to each other except in a face-to-face way. So how do we deal with this? Does this mean, oh, well, we all have to go to church even if it's going to kill us? And the context in the in the scripture is a context of persecution. In other words, people were thinking of leaving the Christian synagogue and going back to the Jewish synagogue because being in the Christian synagogue might bring persecution into their lives. That's not the problem we're facing. You know, I could, in that setting, I could show up to church and it wouldn't put you at risk. It might, it might be a sacrifice of my own reputation or my own standing in the community, but it wouldn't have any effect on yours. Now, if we're going to consider one another to stir up love and good deeds, I think we should be careful. It's not a good uh, consideration to think, well, I should go and, you know, hug and kiss everybody and shake hands and... Uh, mix and mingle just like I always did, even if I might be spreading a deadly disease to somebody, that is not a loving thing to do. Here, we will do this. We will follow the rules. And we will find creative ways to stimulate love and good deeds, to engage in the assembly, to provide the gifts God has given me. This is harder now. Because you can't be together like you have been. And even now when we can gather, you know, only half of us, it's not the same. And we're all sitting in little patches of chairs around the room. Not, we're not supposed to get too close. We can't do it the way we normally do. So we have to find a way. And this is what I mean when I say don't be nuttier than you need to be. 
We, Christians are weird people. We just have to admit it. Christians are nuts. We are, we are called to do things the world will find unreasonable. But we don't have to press it unnecessarily. So what we should do is find ways. I'm encouraging you, wherever you are, if you're here in the room or if you're at your house, I want you to think about the other people in our fellowship. Consider one another. Think, how can I stir up love and good deeds? How can we maintain the connection even if we can't do it by showing up here on Sunday and hugging somebody? Okay, if I can't do it that way, how will I do it? Just think of some ways you can do it. It says, instead of forsaking our assembly, we should encourage one another. Encourage one another. And I am flat out of time, so I'm going to (laughs) stop. You can think of ways to encourage one another, even given the limitations we have to operate in. And it says, even more, all the more, as you see the day drawing near, that hoped day, that day when Jesus arrives, is closer than it was when I started saying this. So as you see, it's closer, closer, closer. It's like, man, you better get in on your encouraging. Better do it now. Time's escaping. You you have a chance. You better get on it. And uh, we should enjoy the fellowship of the body of Christ. And if our government or a disease or any other thing puts some kind of limit or some kind of stress on that, look around and figure out a way. Uh, Figure out a way how to stimulate love and good deeds. Before you do that, though, draw near. Draw near. Full assurance of faith. Hold down. Fasten down with confidence the hope that you have in Christ. That is how you can stimulate love in somebody else. Father, we give you thanks for your grace. Lord, I thank you for the patience of these people (laughs) and uh, listening to this kind of long talk. Father, I pray that this church would be an example of this love that you have given to us, that we would share it with the world around us in whatever way we can. Lord, we thank you for the communication that is available to us in these days that certainly was not available when these things were written for us. Lord, I pray that we might take full advantage. But Father, also, we so look forward to that day when, uh, when we can enjoy that full-on in-person fellowship that we so love and that comes from your love for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.